Amen. Indeed, we worship Christ, the risen King. Turn with me in your Bibles to that passage that Sam has just read. John chapter 20. Because Sam has just read the chapter, I'm not going to read it again, but rather I want to draw your attention to just the last couple of verses, to verses 30 and 31, to hear again John's own statement of why it is that he has written not only this account of Jesus' resurrection, but his gospel in its entirety. John here tells us his, his goal. He, he tells us that objective that he is seeking to accomplish. Let me read it for you. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. This is the very Word of God. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Let me read that last verse just one more time. These are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask Him that it would have its effect here among us this morning. Father God, we come before You now humbly asking that You would remember Your promise not to allow Your Word to return to You void, but rather that it would bring forth a harvest. Well, that is what we ask. As we, as we consider these familiar words, as we hear yet again this familiar story, Father, may it be your power for the salvation of those who believe. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. April 1st, sometimes called April Fool's Day. It's a day when middle schoolers, and maybe a few others, try to get you to believe something incredible, something really beyond belief, in order to make you look a bit silly. No doubt many in the world today think it's most appropriate that it is on this day, at least this year, that we celebrate the resurrection. John tells us that he wrote his gospel and he, and he climaxed it with this chapter in particular so that you might believe, that you might believe these things truly happened. And if you are here this morning, it is almost certain that you knew before you got here that this was going to be a celebration of the resurrection. I doubt that any of you showed up this morning and are now surprised to find out that we're celebrating such a thing. It's, it's not the kind of unexpected twist that comes at the end of a story. It's what you know ahead of time. And yet, while you knew what we were going to be celebrating, while you, you knew the story that was going to be proclaimed, it is possible, maybe even likely, that there are some here this morning who don't believe it, who can't 
believe it, who regard it as the silly story of a middle schooler. You knew the, the plot, but you never thought it was true, at least not in any empirical, historical sense. The story may contain some spiritual truth, but as far as you are concerned, it is not factual. From your perspective, the story of Jesus' resurrection is no more than the story of a phoenix rising from the ashes, something that that tells you that, that, yes, you can overcome the hardships in this life. John writes so that you might believe. If you are here this morning and you find this story incredible, if you find this story beyond belief, then then I am glad that you are here. But I want you to know that my ambition, my hope, my prayer for you this morning is that by God's grace, you would come not only to believe the story, but that you would come to believe in the one the story is about. If that strikes you as unlikely, if it strikes you as maybe even impossible, if you you think that no rational, reasonable, intelligent person could ever believe in such a thing as a resurrection, could ever believe it is anything more than a myth or a fable, I want you to know I understand. I, I really... I really do. I know what it is to to long to appear intelligent. I know what it is to to long to appear rational, to to believe only that which is grounded upon a solid foundation. What I want you to see this morning is that those who proclaim to you this story, the first witnesses, the ones by whom we came to, to know the Gospel, that they shared your skepticism. We sometimes think that it was somehow easier for the first witnesses to to believe because after all, they were simple-minded, pre-scientific people. They, They could believe in such things. But it simply isn't true. In fact, what we see here in John chapter 20 is that the first witnesses were just like you and me. Just like you and me, the first witnesses found the idea of resurrection incredible. That is beyond credibility. Literally unbelievable. We see this first in Mary. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. We're told that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now she's coming on the first day of the week because she had to wait out the Sabbath. Jesus was was crucified on a Friday. On a Sabbath, they, they cannot go to this tomb. They they cannot travel that far. They cannot do the work of preparation. So she comes to complete the work that was done in haste on the day of His crucifixion. The work that could not be done fully. And more than that, no doubt, she comes to grieve. She comes to be near the body of her fallen Master. She comes bringing spices for His body, the other Gospels tell us. But when she arrives, what does she find? When she gets within sight of the tomb, she she sees that the stone at the entrance has been rolled away. The tomb has been opened. And what is her first thought? I can tell you it's not, Hallelujah! He is risen! That's not where her mind goes, but rather immediately she assumes that someone has stolen the body. 
And no doubt she fears what they might do with it. She can imagine what the enemies of, of Jesus might do to his body, the ways they might mock him, the ways they might desecrate his, his body to flaunt their apparent victory. And so she cuts off her journey to the tomb and she immediately runs. She runs to find the apostles, Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, almost certainly John, the author of the Gospel. I want you to think about that for a moment. When she sees the tomb opened, when she sees the stone rolled away, she does not assume that Jesus has risen, but just the opposite. She assumes that someone has taken His body. And we see her unbelief on full display. Of course, we see Peter and John's unbelief next. We see this in verses 3 through 8. When Peter and John hear Mary's report, they immediately set out for the tomb running. And we're told that, that John outran Peter and, and got there first. But when he arrived at the tomb, he, he doesn't go in, but instead he, he stops and stoops and looks inside and he sees the, the claws that had been wrapped around Jesus' body lying there. And as he's wondering what this might mean, Peter finally arrives, no doubt, huffing and puffing. And being Peter, he goes right in. And what does he see? He sees not only the claws that, that John had seen, but he sees the face cloth off to the side. Now, if your mind is, is working and you're thinking clearly, you recognize that this does not look like the scene of a grave robbery. This doesn't appear to be the, a scene where someone has broken in to, to take the body. And that's why verse 8 has traditionally been understood to mean that when John saw the empty tomb, he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. He, he began to, to believe for himself even before he had seen Jesus. But I'm not sure that's the way that verse 8 should be read. I'm not sure that that is what John intends. What is it that they believed in verse 8? It is possible that they mean he believed in the resurrection, but it's also possible that it means they believed Mary's report. John typically uses the word of belief or faith in Jesus, but there are other times in the Gospel where to believe is to believe what you've been told. And so here I think it is possible that, that what John believes is Mary's report. He believes that, that she's telling the truth. He believes that in fact the body has been stolen, just as Mary said. I think this makes the most sense of verses 9 and 10. Look with me again. What does he say in verse 9? He says, for. In other words, this is the explanation. This is the reason for why they believe. For they had not yet understood the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so he believed what? He, he believed Mary's report because he didn't yet understand that Jesus was going to rise. I guess it's possible that it, it means that, that up to this point they hadn't understood, but now they do. But when you look at verse 10, it seems to suggest that they still don't yet get it. Because what do the disciples do? They go home. They go home. Compare that with the response of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, who when their eyes were finally opened, run back to Jerusalem. Not to go home for the night, 
but to tell others whom they had seen, compared even to Mary's own response when she finally sees the Lord and she runs to say, I have seen the Lord. And so the fact that the disciples go home, the fact that they did not yet understand the Scripture suggests to me at least that, that what they believed was Mary's report. And if that's right, then when you put the pieces together, what we see is that upon seeing the empty tomb, even with the grave clothes laid out and the, the headcloth off to the side, it was easier for the first witnesses to believe that, that grave robbers had, had carefully removed and folded Jesus' garments than to believe that he had risen from the dead. You see, the first witnesses were not simple-minded, gullible ancients, but rather they were people just like us. They were people who knew that despite what they had seen with Lazarus, it's not normal for people who have been brutally executed by professional killers to rise from the dead. It's not what they were expecting. And just in case we missed it, John returns to Mary's unbelief at verse 11. Peter and John have gone to their homes, but now Mary remains at the tomb Weeping, weeping for her fallen Lord, weeping for the one she thought was her Savior. In fact, she is so distraught that she doesn't seem to recognize the angels dressed in white who she sees in the tomb. We see this in, in verse 12. Notice what she says. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. Now, elsewhere in the Scriptures, when people encounter angels... They tend to fall on their face in, in fear, but Mary doesn't seem to know who they are, but rather, verse 13, she says, or they say to her, women, why are you weeping? And she says to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. In fact, she is so distraught, and when she sees Jesus himself, she doesn't recognize him, but rather she assumes that he is the gardener, she, she assumes that he is there to, to take care of the, the plants that surround the tomb. And she says to him, sir, if you've taken his body, just tell me where you put it, and I will take it off your hands. And she sees even Jesus. The idea of resurrection is so incredible, so beyond belief. But she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he is the gardener. But of course, it's at this point that the story turns. Verse 16, Jesus says to her simply, Mary. He calls her by name. He addresses her, no doubt, as he had addressed her many times before. And in her name, called out by the Master whom she loves, and that moment, recognition dawns. She turns and she cries out, Rabboni, which means teacher. Suddenly, Mary knows. Suddenly, Mary believes a new story. No doubt she's confused. No doubt she is 
bewildered, no doubt she is in awe. At this point, she has nothing like full comprehension. Not that any of us, even 2,000 years later, have anything like full comprehension. But she knows. She knows that it is Jesus who stands before her. She knows that the one she has followed and loved for three years now stands before him, and he is not dead, but he is alive. Her reaction is understandable. She, she grabs him, she embraces him, she, she clings to him, seemingly overwhelmed with, with joy and probably a bit of bewilderment. And Jesus says to her, Do not Cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now there's a whole sermon just right there that I don't have time to preach this morning. But let's think about what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, I am who you think I am. I am your Lord, but my work is not yet complete. I, I must ascend to the Father, and I need you to do something for me. I need you to go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to not only my Father, but your Father. Because in the work that I have accomplished, you have been adopted as His children. I'm ascending not only to my God, but your God. Because you who were covenant breakers, cut off from the people of God, are now through my death and resurrection brought near. You have been made the people of God again. You who were called not my people are again now my people. And my God is now again your God. This is what Mary hears. This is what Mary believes when she sees Him when she recognizes Him, when she hears Him call her name. She knows that Jesus is not alive, alive, or is not dead, but is alive. We see the same thing with the disciples beginning in verse 19. Notice, we, we find the disciples locked in an upper room. Why? Well, John tells us, for fear of the Jews. Now that's understandable. They, they had seen the Jews conspire to, to kill their master. They can only wonder what they would like to do to them if they, if they find him. It's the same fear that had caused Peter to deny even knowing him on the, the night of his trial. And now they still are afraid. They are still gathered together. They are still wondering what is going to, to happen to them now that their master is, is dead. It is also a, a clear expression of their unbelief. But then what happens? Jesus comes and stands in their midst. And He says to them, Peace be with you. Before commissioning them to go out as, as witnesses to His resurrection and ministers of His gospel of the forgiveness of, of sins. And there's another sermon that I don't have time to preach this morning. But instead, notice this. After seeing Jesus, after seeing Him standing before them, they believe. They believe. We, we know because of what happens next. We're told in, in verse 24 that, that Thomas wasn't present when, when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. We don't know where he was. We don't know why he wasn't there, but he, he wasn't there. He didn't see Jesus. And so naturally... 
he doesn't believe. But the disciples tell him. <laughs> the disciples say, we have, have seen the Lord. We saw him with our own eyes. He, he stood in our midst. And it's at that moment that Thomas earns his, his name. And we'll get to his response in just a bit. He's known as, as doubting Thomas because of what he says. But again, notice the disciples who have seen believe. And that's significant. That's, that's significant for us this morning. We need to see that belief wasn't easy for the first witnesses. Belief wasn't natural. It wasn't what they were looking for. It wasn't, they weren't looking for a reason to believe. But on the contrary, it was unbelief that was easy. It was unbelief that was natural. It was so easy for them not to believe, in fact, that they actually failed to see the evidence that was before their face until that evidence was incontrovertible. They failed to believe until Jesus was literally standing before their faces. And these are the witnesses. These are the ones who tell us of Jesus' resurrection. These are the ones who testify to the truth, to the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day. If you're here this morning, I know that, that it's possible that, that you think it is impossible for a reasonable, rational, intelligent person to, to believe in the resurrection. And I want to challenge that assumption directly. I want to, to challenge it directly. I want to challenge you to see that it's actually the other way around. A reasonable, rational, intelligent person is compelled to believe in the resurrection. To deny the resurrection is to deny the evidence that has been piled up. It is, it is to decide ahead of time that it can't be true and therefore look for some other explanation. It is the very essence of irrationality. Have you ever had a conversation with a, with a teenager who is so sure they know something that they will willingly disregard a mountain of evidence to the contrary? In my family, we used to tell the story about my younger brother who, who liked to think that he knew cars. And so we were driving to church one day and he saw a car in front of us. He said, oh man, I really like that Corolla. And my other brother said, well, I don't think that's a Corolla. I think it's a Civic. And he's like, oh, no, 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 that's a Corolla. And my older brother, being the one who was driving, he sped up. And he got close, and it said Civic right on the back. And my brother said, no, they must have changed the nameplate. <laughs> he was sure he knew. Didn't really care what the evidence said. And we laugh. We, we think such hubris is silly. But I want you to hear me say that the person who refuses to believe in the resurrection because those sorts of things don't happen, is that teenager. So often we, we think we need to be ashamed. So often we, we think that, that we've, we've believed something silly. It is not true. Eyewitnesses just like you and me, people not prone to believe such things, believed in the resurrection because Jesus stood before their face. So if you are here this morning, you have far better reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead than you do to doubt it. His resurrection is a fact of history. 
But here's what I want you to understand. Simply believing that it happened isn't enough. It's not enough simply to believe that He rose again from the dead. I I suspect that most of you in the room here this morning believe that He rose again from the dead. There may be a few who who doubt it. There may be a few who struggle to to believe it. But, But most of us came here this morning because we believe it. We believe this actually happened. We believe that that the tomb was empty. We believe that Jesus rose again from the dead on that first Easter Sunday. But it's not enough to believe simply that it happened. We must also understand its significance. Because such understanding is at the very heart of true faith. And so, what is it that this resurrection is all about. It's what we see in the story of Thomas. As I said, we call him Doubting Thomas, and and rightly so, for for when the other disciples told him that they had seen Jesus, he, he said, unless I see his hands, unless I place my finger in the marks, unless I place my hand in his side, I will never believe. It's an example of what we've seen in the others, what we saw in Mary, what we saw in the other disciples, only it's even more emphatic because now he is rejecting the the testimony of eyewitnesses. And yet in his abounding grace, Jesus condescends to appear to Thomas. He even invites him to to touch his hands and to, to put his hand in his side. And when Thomas sees the Lord, he is not only moved from unbelief to belief, but he is moved to faith. Verse 28, Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. First, Thomas confesses that the one who stands before him is in fact his Lord. That the one who stands before him is, in fact, his his master, the, the one whom he has been following for the past three years. This is none other than Jesus himself, risen from the dead. The one who stands before him is Lord. But then he adds, and my God. This is new. Thomas confesses that Jesus is not only His Lord, not only His Master, but that He is God in human flesh. Now the readers of John's Gospel have known this from the beginning, all the way from the first verse of the the first chapter when John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is this Word that became flesh and and dwelt among us in the person of of Jesus. And so the readers of the Gospel have known from the beginning that, that Jesus is God incarnate, that He is God come in human flesh. But Thomas is the first one in the story to reach this conclusion. He's the the first one in the story to make this confession of faith. It's a wonder we call him Doubting Thomas and not Confessing Thomas. First impressions, I guess, go a long way. His, His initial doubt is transformed not only to belief, but to faith. He sees for the first time that the one who stands before him is not only his Lord, but the one who stands before him is his God. 
But why? How, how could he reach this conclusion? It must be that because in Jesus' resurrection, he saw something unique. Others had been called forth from the tomb by the power of God, ministered through a prophet, such as Elijah or Elisha or even Jesus himself. But Jesus had come forth of his own accord. Jesus had laid down his life and taken it up again. He had called out of the grave Lazarus by the power of God, but now he came out of the grave by his own authority. And only God has such authority. Therefore, Jesus must be God in the flesh. And no doubt the moment that that Thomas saw this, no doubt the the moment that these pieces started to, to fall into place, So many other things that he had seen over the course of the previous years began to to make more sense. Oh, this is the reason he taught as he did. You remember reading it? Throughout the Gospels we're told that that people were amazed at the way Jesus taught. He didn't teach quoting the other prophets, but he, he taught saying, I say to you, such authority. Where did he get it? And not only did he teach with authority, but he even commanded creation with that same authority, and it obeyed him. When they were caught in the storm, he said, peace, be still. And it was. Just as God had calmed the storm in the days of Jonah, Jesus had calmed the storm before their eyes. And it wasn't only creation that obeyed him. It was even the demons The demons were were subject to Him. And not only were they subject to Him, but they were subject to them in His name. How can this be? It starts to make sense. The one that stands before me, the one who gave this authority to His disciples is none other than God Himself. And this, this is why He could forgive sin. Remember the response of the the leaders. Who has authority to forgive sins but God? And Jesus just simply said, you're right. You're right. And I am. He is the reason they they wanted to kill him. For blasphemy, making himself equal with God, calling himself God's own son. All of this was was so beyond their comprehension, so beyond their expectation that they they couldn't see it in the midst of His ministry. But now, as Jesus stood before them alive, it began to make sense. Jesus is God. Jesus is God come in human flesh. God didn't simply send a a prophet to, to teach His people how to live He didn't simply send a prophet to teach him how to do better than the Old Testament people had done, how to to make the best of, of their lives, how to reconcile themselves to God, but rather he came himself in the person of his son to do for his people what they could not do for themselves. We were alienated from God. We were cut off from him. And as Paul tells us in Ephesians, we were without hope. For there is nothing that we could do to reconcile ourselves to God. For what does the law say? All who do not abide by all things written in the book of the law are under a curse. So that Paul can conclude all who rely upon the law will receive only curse. 
If Jesus had just come to explain the law a little better, even if he had come to to give us an example of, of what it looks like to keep it, it would have done us no good. We needed more than instruction. We needed more than teaching. We needed more than an example. We needed one to come and deal with our sin, to remove it as far as the east is from the west. We needed one to conquer sin and death. And only God could do that. And he did. In the person of his son. And their eyes were opened when they saw him alive from the dead coming out of the grave by his own authority, laying down his life and taking it up again as our resurrected king. It is in him that we have hope. And so my prayer for you this morning, my hope for each one of us, is not only that we would believe it happened, but that we would believe in the one who rose. That with Thomas we would confess, my Lord and my God. The one who has come to do for me what I could not do for myself. The one who took my sins upon him. Drank the cup of God's wrath in full. And then rose victorious over sin and death. That all who believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is what Easter is about. That is the significance of His resurrection. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you might have eternal life. Because such a promise is open to all who will believe, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the gift of Your Son. Father God, would You open our eyes to see Him. Would You open our minds to know not only that He is risen, but that He is risen for us. That in Him, we might not perish, but have eternal life. Father God, this is our hope. May we stand in it boldly this morning, and may we stand in it boldly every morning until you come again to bring to completion the good work that you have begun. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.